Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, open the Bible to Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3. I have this sermon and one more planned for this chapter, and then we'll, the story actually continues into chapter 4, and then we'll pick it up there. Acts chapter 3. Now, last sermon... We saw how Peter looked at this crowd, and it's a very large crowd, I might add. Uh, in chapter 4, we learned that as a result of this sermon and him, him and the other apostles continuing to teach, that about 5,000 came to faith. So we're not talking about just a few people. A large number of people are hearing this. Now, Peter looked at the crowd, and they, of course, are amazed because they have witnessed a healing that they could not imagine. A man born lame, unable to walk since birth. Now all of a sudden, not only is he healed and and all, but he is completely healed. He is now fully capable of walking and leaping and dancing. The thing, though, that stands out is that he shifted the focus immediately off of himself and off of the person healed in fact, we, we don't even ever learn the man's name because that's not important. Instead, what he begins to do is he confronts the crowd that has gathered around him with the one who truly did the healing. How he did this, though, is key. And what he did is he began to contrast Old Testament titles and Old Testament terms, all of them pointing to this person God would raise up who would be called the anointed one or the Messiah. In the New Testament, in Greek language, the Messiah was translated as Christos or Christ. That this Christ would come, sent by God, who would bring salvation to Israel, and as a result of that, make all things new. Now, I want you to hear that again, that this one sent by God would come, he would bring salvation to Israel, And as a result of that, he would then make all things new. All of this is is about this person, Jesus, that he was the one sent by God. He was the one promised by God. He was the one prophesied by the prophets. And so what he did, and we spent the time last week doing this, is he invokes all of these different titles that every Jew would know that spoke of this coming one. And so he just draws all of this. Now, you and I, as people who are not raised in a Jewish worldview, um, we would not recognize this as readily, perhaps, as they do. Perhaps you've been a believer so long and faithful in your studies that you recognize what he was doing, but most don't. These are just titles, and they don't come with all of the meaning that's built into the Old Testament. But every Jew would know this. Every Jew would know this, just like children in this church know about Daniel and the lion's den, Noah and the ark, and such. These are the things that they're raised on, hearing these stories. And the story is always about this one, the servant of God, the prophet of God, the holy one, the righteous one. These are the titles that they would hear, and that this righteous one will be raised up, and he will bring salvation. So this servant of God was that anointed one, the Christ. The prince of life was the holy one, the righteous one. All of this is referring to the fact that they were waiting and looking and hoping in the salvation that was found in Yahweh. And that's important. If you were to ask any one of these people in this crowd, who are you waiting for? What is your hope? They would tell you the Messiah. 
I want you to get that wrapped in around your head. They, they all would claim readily they were waiting for the Messiah. And that's why Peter is showing them this one that you have heard and told stories about and hoped in came and you killed him. So the God of your fathers sent you the promised Savior and servant and you delivered him up instead to be killed. The one you claim you're waiting for. God sent the one who is holy and righteous to you and you chose the murderer instead. God sends you the author of life, you kill him. God sends you the Messiah, the Christ, so that he, might, he, he would make all things right that is wrong in the world, and you turn away. God sends you the perfect prophet, like Moses, so that you might listen and live, but you reject him. And therefore, as a result of that, what he says at the very end of this chapter, well, actually, not right at the end, In verse 21 and 22, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, the ancient time. Then Moses said, the Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed in everything he says. And then he gives this severe warning. And it shall be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And so he brings this sermon to an end with this severe warning that the prophet, the prophet they all waited for had come. They did not heed. And the problem is if you do not heed and you walk in rejection to his message, all you do is bring divine eternal judgment. Well, that moves then to a crisis point. What he then begins to talk about is how they need to then repent. And so he had, he had, the way he had done this is that he's trying to break them out of their self-righteousness. And this is hard to do if you've ever dealt with a person who thinks he's fine, who thinks he's got it, who thinks everything is okay in his life. And the only way that he can break them out of that self-righteous thinking is to be brutally blunt. People who love you do not are not blunt to you because they think it's fun. People who love you are blunt to you because they need you to hear what you're not hearing. They need you to come to grips and be confronted with things that you're not, some for, in, for one reason or another, grasping in your life. And therefore, they finally decide, I love you enough that I'm going to tell you that you are this. And that's what Peter did. You are a murderer. You are guilty. You are under God's judgment. These are not nice things. Now, if you ever want to see what that looks like, I recommend, I'm going to ask the community group leaders to do this with your group, is you can actually go onto YouTube and there's this uh, ministry called Living Waters Ministry. It's done by Ray Comfort. And, and I just handpicked uh, or cherry picked out one video, but you can watch how he does this very thing where he speaks very blunt to people about their situation. And yet, at no time do you think that he's just beating the people up. He has this one video that's very good that's, it, it's entitled, This is what happens when you evangelize in Compton. Compton's a real nasty part of Southern California. And he's just talking to gang members, defense lawyers, and he's just there with his camera and his microphone, and he just begins to ask him questions. But he has a way of having them just simply talk about the Ten Commandments. Have you ever done this? Well, if have you ever said a lie? Well, yeah, okay, well, what does that make you? Well, a liar. All right, have you ever lusted in your heart for a woman that was not yours? Yeah, well, God calls that adultery. So what does that make you? An adulterer. Okay, and he goes on and on and on with that. And he says, so let me just sum this up. You have just admitted yourself that you're a lying, thieving adulterer. And you just watch their face shift. Now, he's, he's saying some pretty brutal things, right? He's saying things very bluntly. But what he really is doing is just breaking through that self-righteous. Because if you watch the people's face 
And these are just random encounters. They start out looking very smug and secure and, and very wise in their own eyes. But as he's talking to them, he does it so kindly, but he also is brutal with them. He is just confronting them with the fact that they are sinners. And then from there, he shifts to share the gospel. So do that. Look that up, and you can see what that looks like in our day and age. That's all Peter is doing. One thing I think that you need to understand, though, is that what Peter is doing here is not trying to just berate people. He's just simply telling them what's true. But it's always easy to make a person feel guilty. Parents do it all the time with their children, right? They disobeyed, you're tired of it. Even if they have sought forgiveness, you want to keep harping on them because they won't, for whatever reason, you're annoyed, and so you just keep making them pay for what they have done wrong. This is very common in society as well, and we just continue to heap condemnation and judgment upon the person because it's very easy to make them feel guilty and then use that as a way of manipulation. But the Christian must also always learn to bring hope. So using that child idea, within the home or within school, they they might have disobeyed and done something wrong, maybe something pretty bad, And upon that, then we would bring discipline. Now, you don't get much of that within like the public school system, but I can assure you that in Mago Day, that there's a a standard that they must meet, and the teachers are all addressing not just the mind of the child, but their heart. And there's going to be a result of a discipline, and it might be a timeout. Uh, Parents might uh, discipline their child and send them to their room uh, without supper, or that they are not going to be able to be with the family for the rest of this evening. In other words, there's this loss of fellowship with the others, and it's not fun. The Bible talks about this in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians specifically, There was a man who had been disciplined out of the church because of unrepentant sin. And finally, this man repented. And Paul actually has to admonish the church to go and forgive this man and show him comfort. That's what stood out for me as I re-looked at that passage. Not just forgive him, but comfort him so that he would not be overcome with excessive sorrow. This was a man who had come to realize he had sinned, he was broken by his sin, he had sought forgiveness, and the church wasn't letting him up off the ground. They kept pushing his face down into it. He says, forgive him and comfort him. Where am I going with this? Well, I've been doing this long enough, and I've been alive long enough to know that there are oftentimes a lot of people who stand on the very edges of the Christian faith wanting to be a Christian, but thinking there is no way I ever will make it. They want to be a Christian. They, they, they come to church. They're, they're intrigued. They like what they see. They like how people treat them. They like how they're, they're able to just be a person here. They don't have to put up barriers and walls. They're just allowed to be a human. And they're there. They come on Sundays, and they're right there on the edge. They want to follow Jesus, but the problem is that there is a guilt that's upon them, a burden that's so great for them, and they never go beyond that. It's interesting. These are the type of people that are not debating whether they're a sinner. I'm not talking about the guy who comes in all smug and self-righteous and saying that he's now a gift to the church. I'm talking about the one who comes in there, and there is absolutely no debate whatsoever that he or she is a sinner. They got that down. They just have no hope. They don't know what to do with their sin. These are often people, weirdly, who grew up in the church. They grew up in the church, and mom and dad maybe pressed them to get that that early confession of faith, so they asked Jesus in their heart kind of thing. They said their sinner's prayer, and everything's fine, and now they're trying to conform themselves to all this, but really, a heart change has not happened. A conversion has not taken place that's done by the Spirit. 
And then they begin to rebel and push away, and ultimately they walk away from things, not in a sense of true apostasy, but literally they, they just walk away from it. And so they get older and they abandon these things and then they dive into all sorts of things that they should be ashamed of and they know they ought not to be doing because their mother and father were faithful to teach them the way of Christ. And now they've done all of that and now the sin is just sitting on them. Do you know what I'm getting at? The, the sin's there. They're at, back at church because they know they need to come to church and they need to be there, but they never come to grips that they have any hope because their sin is so heavy upon them. They're aware of all the things they've done wrong, their history, and they're intensely aware that many of the other people know of the things they did wrong. They're haunted by choices that whisper in their ears that they are guilty. And so they're almost like a stray animal sitting outside some window looking into the warmth of a house. They're there, but they're not there. They belong, but they don't really belong. And so they sit there in church, in relationships and families, and they silently ache and groan because their soul in their soul because there's no hope. And you can talk to them about their sin. And you just heap it on them and heap it on them and keep pressing that. But they're not debating about their sin. They just want hope. Where's the hope? Well, this sermon actually is the kind of sermon that person needs. So if you are that person today, you need to hear this. You need to understand what he is saying because he is brutally honest to these people. He tells them the truth. It's not fun. It's not pretty. But he also gives them incredible hope. Painful, though the sermon is, and painful for this, that this message that Peter gives, it may be painful, but that's because it exposes that guilt, right? It's interesting. There are many who are in the church also who are not lacking information about Jesus. We're not talking about the one who's burdened with the guilt. We're talking about the one who's just well taught. They've been raised up in a godly home. The mom and dad have been teaching them and teaching them. They, they know. They've read. They've heard. They have heard more sermons than they know what to do with it. They have books and articles. All of this is readily available to them. They know who Jesus is. They know what he has done, what he shall do but they never ultimately believe those, those truths, those, that information. They, they don't know what to do with that record, and they walk away. But this sermon is a hope-filled sermon because he tells them what they need to do. These Jews all knew all of the information about the Messiah. They would have blown you away if you had given them a theological examination on the doctrine of, G of the Christ or the Messiah. They would have told you all about the prophet. They would have told you all about the servant of God. They would have told you all about the holy and righteous one, the prince of life. They knew it all. And yet when he was standing there right in front of them, they somehow missed it. Some of you are like that. You know it all, but you've never seen Jesus. And some of you in this room are so weighed down by your guilt that you don't think that you have hope. I'm here to talk to both of you. The answer he gives is very simple, beloved. It's to repent. And that's what we're going to explore today and next week. So open your Bibles, if you haven't, to Acts 3. I'm going to read verses 13 down to 21, and we'll go from there. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered up and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one, and ask for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know, and the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. 
And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ should suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and return, that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ, appointed for you. May the Lord bless this. What we have here is a wonderful word of hope. Verses 19 and 20 are ones that we want, I want you to focus on over these next couple of weeks as we work it through. Now, that issue behind all of this, though, is something that may have jumped out to you. I hope so. I tried to uh, bring a little bit of an emphasis into my voice as we came to it, and it's found in verse 17, where we see having, uh, we, we see these words, and now, brethren, I know, so this is Peter talking to them, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. Now, what is he talking about there? What, what, what is meant by this? In light, in light of all the strong words that Peter has already given them, where'd this come from? Well, in verse 13, he mentions, you delivered him up to death. In verse 13, you disowned him. In verse 15, you put to death the prince of life. In verse 14, you disowned and asked for a murderer in his place. And yet in verse 17, you acted in ignorance. Which one is it? It doesn't seem like one of those is correct. Now, now some commentators um, amazingly and annoyingly said, well, he's just saying that to, to smooth their feathers. I'm like, no, no, this is a man of truth. He's not, he's not just saying something that's not true just to make everyone like him again because he's been kind of harsh. He's actually speaking truth here He has laid out their guilt, but he's also driving home that they somehow acted and did all this in ignorance. Now, what is going on? Well, again, this requires you to understand your Old Testament. In the Old Testament, within the world of the Jews, there are these two types of sins that you would perform or commit. And do not think that this has any connection with Roman Catholicism and their their venial sins and their moral sins. People make that connection, and they ought not. But understand that in the Old Testament, God established two types of sins. There are, are the sins of presumption, and, and we won't look at them for the sake of time, but depending on your translation, you'll find it rendered this way. If anyone sins presumptuously or with a high hand, I like that one, a high-handed sin. Others will say defiantly. So you'll come across these, and whenever you come across a passage where it's a presumptuous sin, a high-handed sin, a defiant sin, this is one of full knowledge, a willful heart. I know what is wrong. I don't care. I know who God is. I know all of that, and I willfully do this. One of the sins that would be done like this is murder, where they where they slay their brother or sister, meaning person, with a high hand, meaning they willfully know that they're going to go and kill. This is the issue of intent. The Bible, through the word of God, says there is no forgiveness. That person was either cut off from his people for all time, meaning he would be sent out of Israel. He was no longer welcome in Israel. He was no longer capable of going to the temple to worship and to resolve his sins or anything else. He is cut off. That man shall be cut off all his days. Or the other option was he was killed. No room, no wiggle room in those. But then there was these sins that would be done in ignorance. This is where, though you heard the law, knew the law, somehow you found yourself breaking the law. That's different. So you hear the law, you know you're supposed to do all these things, and yet somewhere along the line, there you are, and you're like, shoot, how did I get here? 
All of you know what that's like. And in that, once you realize that it is a sin, once it's pointed out to you, look, that's a sin, the law forbids that, you don't say, oh, well, I did an oopsie. It's okay. I didn't realize, wow, you're right. You now resolve it. You go back to the temple, you bring your sacrifice, and you resolve it before God. So you have to do the proper sacrifice. I don't know if you knew this, but on the Day of Atonement, the one great holy day of Israel, that was the one time a year, every year where the high priest and only the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle or temple. And what he would do is he would then offer a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. But it's not the sins of Israel, period. It is the sins of Israel that they committed in ignorance. In other words, once a year, he would make an offering to God for all of the sins that nobody ever did notice. How many of you, and I don't want to see hands, but how many of you, as you grow as a Christian, You keep discovering new sins that you discover, huh, never noticed that before. In fact, you almost get afraid to pick up a new rock in your heart, right? Picture a little rock-strewn thing in your heart, and you're, you're, you're like, you lift it up, and some creepy crawly thing comes back out, and you're like, let's just put that back down. Because you keep thinking you're doing good. And then you continue to grow in your knowledge of the Lord and his holiness and, and his ways, and you begin to see things that you never saw before. That's ignorance. It's not like it wasn't there, and it wasn't like you weren't taught it usually. It's just that you didn't see it. You didn't grasp it for what it is. Well, in the New Testament, it talks about this. We can go all the way back to Luke. Luke chapter 23 as a, a good example for you to go to. Luke 23, 34. And when I read this one, you're like, oh, yeah. 34, verse 34, Christ is on the cross, right? And Jesus was saying in verse 34, Father, forgive them, why? For they do not know what they're doing. Well, it seemed like they knew what they were doing. The crowd was saying, crucify him. They were lying about him. They were doing all kinds of stuff. And yet when he looks out upon this crowd and they're all jeering and they're throwing rocks and spitting on him and all the other stuff that they're doing, he says, they don't know. They don't know what they're doing. Then you can go into the book of Acts itself. In fact, this passage you should uh, keep your finger in. We'll come back to it. In Acts 13, Acts 13. Acts 13, verse 16, down to 30. Here, Paul is now in the picture, and he is talking to Israelites. And so I want you to realize, again, he's not talking to Gentiles who don't know the Bible. He's talking to Jews, and this is a critical passage. And so he says, he stood up, motioned with his hand, and he said, men of Israel... And you who fear God, these are Gentiles who were part of the temple because they had become believers in the Old Testament sense. They, they believed that Yahweh was the one true God, but they therefore knew the Bible as well, the Old Testament. He says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. And for a period of about 40 years, he put up with them. (laughs) Isn't that great? He put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. And after these things, he gave them judges until the Samuel, the prophet. And then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And after he'd removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he had all, he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From the offspring of this man, according to promise, 
That's the Davidic covenant that he made in 2 Samuel, the covenant he made with David that there will always be one who would sit on the throne and one who would hold that throne for eternity. According to promise, God brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John, John the Baptist, had proclaimed before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose I am? I am not he, but behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the word of this salvation is sent out. Now, notice verse 27. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him, meaning Christ, or the utterances of the prophets, which is the Old Testament, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And then they had carried out all that was written concerning him. They took him down from the cross, laid him in the tomb, but God raised him from the dead. Now, you see again him laying out in very quick fashion the history of Israel in the Old Testament. He says this very cleanly, and it's a history that everybody in that room would know. But what he leads up to is that this one was delivered up, and you did not recognize him. You did not know what you are. The, the, the men and women of Israel, the rulers of Israel in back in Jerusalem, uh, they did not recognize him for who he is. And therefore, they had done this in ignorance. Now, keep your finger there. Now, turn a little bit further back in the Acts to 17. Here, Paul is talking to a whole different crowd. He's in Athens. And he is out preaching, and evangelizing. Now, notice how he does it here. In verse 17, he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, which is just the way it was in Athens, all these philosophical ideas and philosophers are there. They were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others see, says, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they thought that there were these two gods, the resurrection and this Jesus. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming for you are bringing some strange things to our ears and we want to know therefore what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now, notice what he says then. What therefore you worship in ignorance... This I proclaim to you. Now notice how he then does it. Back in 13, he gives a history of Israel. Here, he's not talking to Jews. Notice how he approaches the gospel. The God who made the, he- the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. So now he's actually quoting their own poets. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. And then what does he say? Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring men that all everywhere should what? Repent. 
This idea of the ignorance goes for both the Jew and the Gentile. It is the idea that there is this inability in our minds to understand what's really going on. Even though we hear it and we know it and we're taught it, there's just this astounding ability to miss it. Paul even makes this point in 1 Timothy 1, chapter 13. I'll just say it real quickly where he's giving his own testimony. He says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy. Why? Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Here he is murdering Christians, persecuting Christians, blaspheming the name of God because he was mocking Jesus, who is God. And he says, I was shown mercy because I was acting ignorantly in unbelief. Belief. What you have here in Acts chapter 3 is Peter bringing hope to these people because he has just beaten them to an inch of their life, and all they can hear is, You are guilty. You are in so much trouble because you killed the one God promised. You, the ones who were waiting for him, you are the murderers of him. And now he is saying to them, But it was not a sin of defiance. It was not a sin of presumptuousness. It was not a high-handed sin. It was done in ignorance. You just didn't understand who he was. Even though he said it, even though he did everything that should have made sense, you looked at him and you just didn't see. Why? Well, there's a reason, and it's called sin. So let me make some quick observations about this being ignorant about or before God the first thing I want to say is it's not a saving excuse. So if any of you are sitting in here and you're saying, well, cool, I'll keep that in my back pocket so when I'm standing before God on judgment day, you know, I'll play the ignorant card. Well, I just didn't know. It's not an escape clause. The scripture is very clear in Romans chapter 1 that God has made himself known to all of mankind. In Romans 1.18, it says his wrath is flowing from heaven because that which was known about him and made plain to uh, us about him, God, he put it in our hearts and he put it in the glory of creation. He says, so that they are without excuse. All of you carry with you the knowledge of God. All of you have that. And you can reject it all you want. The wrath of God is there, he says, because you suppress it. You look at it and you keep coming up with something else other than this is God, I should worship him. And then the religious people, and in that day it was the Jews, in chapter 2 of Romans, he tells them, and you know what? Your problem is you know all of this stuff and you still sin. They're all busy looking at the Gentiles and all the filthy things they do and oh boy. And he's like, Your problem is that you know the same things and you still sin. And you actually think that because nothing bad is happening to you right now, that you're good with God. And some of you in this room are just like that. You figure that because your life is pretty comfortable, God must be pretty happy with you. And he says, do you not understand that all you are doing is storing up the wrath of God for the day of wrath? It is an immeasurable amount that's constantly filling as you continue to live a life where you say, I'm good, I don't need them, I understand, I know, and you don't understand that it's storing up for you his wrath. And when you say, well, I didn't understand that, that will never be an excuse because God will show you what your heart always knew. Today, we would say it this way. Instead of Gentiles who uh, have God written on their hearts, and so they're without excuse, and the Jew who was taught the word of God, therefore they knew, but they still committed acts of rebellion. Okay, instead of them, we would call them the churched and the unchurched, right? The unchurched, the one out there who's never gone to church, never been uh, heard a Bible story, never bought a Bible, never got told anything, they're all over the place here in America. Those people are the Gentiles, and they have no excuse because though they're ignorant, they don't understand things, there's still that knowledge that God has put in their heart. And then there's the countless who are uh, churched. They're raised in the church. They're told all the stories. Mom and dad were faithful. 
oh so faithful to teach them these things. And they still want to go their own way. The second thing you should know about being ignorant, though it's a word of hope, it's not the same thing as being innocent, therefore. The Bible makes it very clear to anyone who reads it that the problem we really possess is not an action problem, but a heart problem. The Bible says that our heart is the most deceitful and desperately sick thing there is. And as a result, this heart, which is the core of what you are, it's the source of all that you dream, think, will, wish, and act upon. It is the essence of you. This heart makes us guilty before God. And so we read passages that say that there's none righteous before God, not one, not even one. There are none who do good before God, right? That all of us have gone astray. We hear these things. What's so weird is in ignorance, we think it means something else. Without Jesus, you and I are a people who would be swift to pursue sin, invent evil, and then give hearty approval to everyone else who does their own evil. This is what the Bible says. We may be ignorant, but we're not innocent. And oftentimes this ignorance comes because we're simply not paying attention. It's not for lack of information. It's for lack of listening. I tell people all the time, you should be aware of the constant spiritual warfare that just simply quietly takes place here in this room every single Sunday. How often people are here, and as the gospel begins to get preached, people go into coughing fits, people all of a sudden have to use the restroom, the baby begins to act up, you have to leave the room, you're no longer listening, and I watch it happen week after week after week after week after week, and people don't even give it a thought. It's a battle, a battle to hide and to subdue and to push aside and to distract what is being told, so that we don't pay attention. One of the things that we do here in this church is we try to provide a way for you to be able to come and be undistracted. That's what we're shooting for. We're not here to give you comfort. We're here to bring you into a place where you can hear undistracted the word of God that you might know. I want you to understand that if you're going to ever claim ignorance, but you come here, it won't work well because all it really means is you simply weren't paying attention to what was being taught. The Jew, that was their problem. It wasn't lack of knowledge. They just couldn't pay attention to what they saw right in front of them with Jesus. And so somehow they ended up missing the very one they were waiting for. The next point about ignorance is that it's only ignorant until truth is given. Once you know, you're not ignorant. So go back to Acts 13 real quickly. I asked you to keep your finger there. I hope you did. I'll start reading in verse 44 to 46. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. So these are the Jews now, the ones he had just preached to. The week before on the Sabbath, now the whole city is out there to listen to him. That's pretty cool. They began to preach, and the Jews saw the crowds. They were filled with jealousy. They began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you, the Jew, first. Since you what? You repudiate it, you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. In verse 45, was that a sin of ignorance or a sin of high-handedness? Yeah, it's high-handedness. That's what's going on there. This is actually a horrible passage. Judgment had been rendered against these Jews. Jesus did that as well. There is a place in John where he talks to the Pharisees. And they were willfully rejecting him. 
And he said, you do not believe because you will not. And then he says these words, and you shall die in your sins. When the Savior says, you shall die in your sins, you're toast. Peter, or Paul looks at these people and he had given the word of hope. He had preached to them Jesus Christ, the one they all said they were waiting for. And it was in ignorance, he said. You didn't know. The next week, they knew now. And now they're fighting actively against them and judgment is proclaimed. And the final point about ignorance is the only answer to it is repentance. It's absolutely necessary. Remember again, the Old Testament requirement is that once you found out that you had sin, though you hadn't recognized it as sin, you had to go make a sacrifice. Now understand, it was always a sin. You just didn't know it. And so once you come to see it, you make it right with God through the sacrifice. We'll go back to Acts 3 and look at verse 19. He says that you have done this in ignorance in verse 17. So what's the answer? Oh, well, no. The answer is repent and therefore return. So what is repentance? That's what this whole sermon's about ultimately. And now we're here. All repentance means, beloved, and we'll develop it a bit more next week. Repentance literally means a change of one's mind. In other words, it's a heart issue before it's a lifestyle issue. Most people seem to think that repentance means you stop doing things, but what God says is, no, you stop believing things. There are these things you stop believing, you begin to believe these things. The heart always brings the life alongside it. Many of you are right there, right? Some of you are the younger Christian, and you're still discovering new things that you just got to put away. Grayson described that in his own life. It wasn't, it was great that he came to faith, but then it was, shoot, now I got to learn how to be godly. And, and then, then he makes the foolish idea, which is a common one, we all do it, that if I just get all this information, I'll be godly. And then he finds out that that's just information. You have to apply it. And it's a lot harder to be godly than to think like you're godly. All you are doing, beloved, is when you repent, is there's this mind shift where now it's something else. At the very core of the issue is this need for humans to have a new mind. In fact, it's actually built into the very meaning of the word repent. Metanoao is the word, and it literally means meta new, and noao, mind, new mind. Let me show you a couple passages in Colossians chapter 1. And here, I'd rather, if you're not good at finding passages, listening would be more important right here. Colossians 1.21, Paul says this, And although you were formally alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. There he describes these believers. Remember what you used to be. You used to have this mind that was hostile, and as a result, you engaged in evil deeds. Go backwards to Ephesians chapter 4, and he builds on that a, a bit more thoroughly. In verses 17 to 19, Ephesians 4, This I say, therefore, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as a Gentile, just insert the word unbeliever, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Where do they walk? In what realm? In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, and therefore they're excluded from the life of God. Why? Because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they have having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Do you see how he's piling up these mental terms? He, sa he says you had this futile mind, your understanding's darkened, you're ignorant because you have a hard heart, it becomes callous and it leads to an ungodly life. That is the problem that we're having, which is why you need to repent. You have to have this mind shift. 
Paul says in Titus chapter 1, verse 15, just hear this, I'll read it. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Why? But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. This is what you're dealing with, is you're dealing with people. Some of you are in this room. Your conscience and mind is defiled by sin, and you're standing on the edges of the Christian faith wanting in, but you don't know what to do. Jesus would say to you, repent. Just repent. Stop thinking it's over here and see it's found in Jesus. And so with that, going back to our passage, he says, repent therefore, and then he throws in another word that's commonly connected to repentance. Repent therefore and return. This is a word you and I get if you've been raised in a church, you'll be comfortable with this word. It means to be converted. It's a conversion. When was I converted? When you repented. When you repented, your mind shift was, I trust in God. I trust in God and what he has given me in Jesus Christ, who is my Lord. He is my one who purchased my salvation. I hope there. I change my mind and that's what I fix on. And at that moment, you were converted in Christ. So in Acts 14, this passage is used as well. Look in Acts 14, verse 15. And again, if you're not good with the Bible, I'd rather you hear right now than spend the time looking for it. Acts 14, verse 15. Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you. What? In order that you should turn. That's the same word, that you should turn or return, but you should turn from these vain things. Where? To a living God, the one who made everything. That's what conversion means. You're, you're, you're heading this direction and you now return. You turn around, you go to God. Repent is you're thinking this way, you repent, and you're now thinking toward God. It's the same concept, the same image. First Thessalonians, we won't go there, but there he's thankful because he, he saw that when they brought the gospel to the people in that town, that they believed and they turned from their God, their, their idols to the living God. Some of you are aware of all of your idols. Some of you are aware of all of your sins. And some of you are aware of all of your guilt. You just haven't turned. That's all. That's all you haven't done. And you're out there and you're wondering, is there hope for me? Turn. Turn. This is why there's this intimate connection between repentance and what the Bible calls faith or believing. Because saving faith is this drawing of hope and life upon God and nothing else. This is the essence of what repentance is. It never is merely this mental acceptance of your sin, that you are a sinner or this is true about the gospel. You don't just agree to the gospel. Rather, it's this complete reversal of a mindset and, and therefore its lifestyle. To believe in Jesus as Lord and King, Son of God and Savior means you no longer then can tolerate any other Lord or King or Savior. Do you see that? Does that make sense? If I have a radical mind shift that Jesus is my Lord, I have no other Lord. If Jesus is my Savior, I have nothing else that will save me. It's that simple. That's what repentance is. It's, it's never hard to see either because you can't hide genuine repentance. It's, it's as impossible to hide than if I were to take you, sir, and you were blind and you were healed of blindness. Everyone in this room would know you were now able to see because you wouldn't hold that back. Your whole life you saw nothing and now you see your mouth is going to say things. Even if you think, oh, i got to hide this, you can't because you'll, all, you'll step to the side and avoid somebody that you would have run into. You'll just 
Everything in your life will scream, I can see, even if your lips don't say it. Have you ever seen one of those videos of those kids who can't hear, or an adult, they can't hear, and they, they get the implant, and they're showing you the video of them hearing for the first time? And there is this one that, I, I don't get teary-eyed, but there is this one where this young woman, she heard the voice of her husband for the first time. And it's, it's on YouTube, you can look at them, they're very endearing. It's really sweet when you see a little baby who hears the voices of his mom and dad for the first time. Their whole life, there's no, no voice, no noise, no nothing. And then they turn it on, and they start to turn it up, and you know, they're nervous, and they're sitting there. And you know, without the person ever saying a word that they hear, why? Because they burst out in tears. They hear. I don't know if he's repented. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. The repentant one has turned. And they have a new king. Notice that three things are promised if they would repent. I want you to see this because this is preparing you for next week where it's going to get kind of deep. So be prepared. Repent, therefore, return, First thing that is promised if you repent is your sins may be wiped away. We'll talk about that in a second. Second thing is in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that's the next thing that will happen if they would repent. And then notice the third one. This is mind-blowing. And that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. Christ returns. We'll deal with that in a moment. Let's talk briefly, and then we'll go for the day. That first promise is what I'm talking to you today about. Your sins will be wiped away or blotted out. In that day, when they would have like a court stenographer, you know, the guy that is typing away on that weird machine, you, it would be a wax tablet, and they would just take the notes, and they'd make these impressions in this wax tablet, and then it would be later transferred to a, a formal record, okay? But it would be done, and all of these things would be taken care of. And then there is this moment where everything's done, and they would just simply use their thumbs and the warmth of their fingers, and they would press on that wax, and then they would blot out all of the marks, and now they start with the blank tablet again. And that is actually the image of what he is saying to some of you who right now desperately want to know, can I be saved? He says, repent, and the thumbs of God, if you will, will simply wipe them away. They're gone. They're gone. It is such a lovely picture. Now, it's not the end goal. We'll do that next week. But it is a wonderful starting place. I remember when I, I hiked in the high Sierras once, um, we, we hiked 50 miles over a course of a week, and we were up in the high, high Sierras. And we started on, if you know where the Sierra uh, mountain range is, there's the California side and the Nevada side. The Nevada side is ugly because it's all desert because all the rain gets dropped on the California side. It can't make it up over the mountains. Now, I like desert, but it's still ugly. And so our starting point for our journey was about 9,500 feet, and we went driving up through all this sagebrush and rock, and if you know anything about high mountains, the mountains, uh, uh, the tree line stops at 10,000. After 10,000 feet, very seldom do you find anything growing except for little tiny scrub stuff. And we started at 9,500. So everything there is starving for oxygen, and including me, and... It's, it's all kind of broken and twisted and brown. And I, we put on our packs, and we, there was no purpose in looking around. We just started. And we started walking up the switchback trail, and it took us several hours to climb all the way up to about 11,500 feet. And we finally reached the peak, and we were going to drop down into the first valley. It was the most miserable several hours of my life, 
as I'm rethinking the whole process here. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? I cannot breathe. This is not fun. You're literally not looking around. You're just looking at the very next place your foot's going to go for the next several hours. When you got to the top and, and the whole fullness of the Sierra Nevada range opened up before you, you're like, oh, that was worth it. But you, by faith, started this journey in an ugly place, okay? God doesn't even do that to you. He starts you out in a wonderful place. This whole process of repentance that ultimately leads to the return of Christ, which will be better than anything we can imagine, starts with you with your sins wiped away. What a wonderful place to start. It's not start here and we'll start working on you and maybe you'll make it. Nope. He gives you life and he gives you forgiveness in the fullest sense. He just blots it all away. He says, you're my child. So are you that one I mentioned at the beginning who's standing on the edges of the Christian faith, but it's your sin that holds you back? You made dumb foolish choices that haunt you, you're afraid of rejection, then this promise is for you. Just like these Jews, they're here and, oh man, we are dead. And he's like, you did it in ignorance, so repent. You've heard about Jesus dying on the cross for sin. You, you hear about Jesus rising from the dead on the third day, but you cannot somehow see that this applies to you. Can I not urge you now by simple faith of trusting God's faithfulness to embrace that he didn't just die, but he died for you in your place, took your death. And then you say, yeah, but would God even accept me? You don't know. You don't know what I've done. And the answer is yes. I I can't be more simple than that. Yes. Why would he accept you? Well, it has nothing to do with you. Nothing. He'll accept you because he accepts his son's payment on your behalf. Why are the sins blotted away? Because they got stuck on Jesus. He took them. They're not yours anymore. Just embrace that. So the answer is that you cast all your hope on Jesus, you claim him alone to be your way of salvation, and then the promise is as simple as it is astounding. Your sins are blotted out. And you're sitting here maybe even right now, still waiting for some feeling or or some way to clean up yourself. You're like, yeah, well, I I still got to fix a few things. No, you're never going to do it. You'll never fix it because it's a heart issue and you can't change that. It's a waste of time. It's like trying to wash a window and all you have is the sludge from a swamp to use. You just keep making it worse. All he says is turn back, turn to Jesus and the very sins that hold you back will be wiped away. Nothing shall remain except the righteousness of Christ himself covering you. No trace of sin that will be found that you'll be held against, that you have to deal with. This is the offer to the people of Israel. He's saying, turn. You did it. You're guilty. Repent. And what's sad is many walked away having heard it because they didn't want to believe it. Do not be that person. No sin of yours will stand outside that promise. Not one of you here is that good of a sinner that you can beat the grace of God. It is an infinite grace that covers it all. He just says, you've got to repent. You've got to change. No more other kings. He's your king. No other lords. He's your Lord. Repent. It's forgiven. If you embrace Christ as your Lord, it is sin, the sin is forgiven, it is removed, it is taken on the shoulders of the one who alone can deal with it. So let me say it again, and hear me well, one more time. 
the way of salvation shall remain closed to any of you in this room that want to hold your sin. You want your sin, then there is no salvation. You hate that sin that clings to you like Velcro, and you can't get rid of it, and you would do anything if it could be blotted out, then this promise is for you. Repent, come to Jesus simply in your heart, give yourself to him even now, and the promise is he will give you life and he will blot your sins away. Now what we'll do is take that promise, which is an amazing promise, and we'll build on it and show you that that's not even the most amazing thing about why you should repent. And we'll look at that next week. Right now, I want you to know that if your faith is in Christ, your sins are gone. Let's pray. So Father, help us that. Help us to understand what it means to have faith in you, to repent. I pray that you would just show the person who's sitting right now hearing these words the beauty of it, the simplicity of it, and that they would finally come to rest because it's not them, but it's what your son has done on their behalf. Open our eyes to the beauty of that, that we would know it and love it and rejoice in it and hope in it. Let us be people who tell people about this, not want to just tell it, but we actually talk to people and tell them the hope found in Jesus Christ. Strengthen us to that task by the Holy Spirit in your Son's name. Amen.